Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hi everyone and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Majid Majid, writer, activist, and some of you may know me as the former Lord Mayor of Sheffield and the MEP representing Yorkshire and the Humber. This event has been kindly sponsored by the Hawthornden Literature Retreat, just to kind of let you know some of the formalities for today's event. And it's going to be a one hour event, basically. We're going to have 45 minutes of discussions with two amazingly brilliant, talented authors. And it's going to be followed by 15 minutes of um, Q&As from yourselves in the audience. Just to kind of give you a bit of a rundown on some of the bios of the authors that we've got today. And the first author's name is Paul Mendes, who's the author of Rainbow Milk. Paul Mendes was born and raised in the black country. He now lives in London and he's studying for an MA in black British writing at Goldsmiths at the University of London. He has been a performing member of two theatre companies and worked as a voice actor, appearing in audiobooks by Andrea Levy, Paul Theroux and Ben Ockrey, most recently recording Ian Wright's A Life in Football for Hachette Audio. As a writer, he has contributed to the Times Literary Supplement and the Brixton Review of Books. Rainbow Milk is his debut novel. You're most welcome, um, Paul, thank you for joining us. Hello. Uh, next um, author we've got is Derek Owusu. And Derek Owusu is a writer, poet, and podcaster from North London. He discovered his passion for the written word at the age of 23 while studying exercise science at the at university. Unable to afford a change of degree, Derek began reading ferociously and sneaking into English literature lectures at the University of Manchester. Writing since he was eight, the moment Derek fell in love and with writing and he had something to share was the reading of a short story by D.H. Lawrence. Derek has produced the well-written and well-received This Is Spoke podcast by Penguin Random House and Fremantle Media. He, was, he has written for many outlets such as The Big Issue and Media Diversified. Derek has collated, has collect, sorry, Derek also collated, edited and contributed to SAFE and on Black British Men Reclaiming Space a timely anthology exploring the experience of black men in Britain. Thank you for joining us, Derek. Uh, you're most welcome today as well. Just to Thank give, uh, Yeah, brilliant. Sorry. <laughs> Just to kind of give like a short synopsis of uh, each of the books. So Paul Mendes has written a fabulous book called Rainbow Milk. Rainbow Milk is an intersectional coming of age story following 19 year old Jesse McCarthy as he grapples with his racial and sexual identities against the backdrop of a Jehovah's Witness upbringing and the legacies of the Windrush generation. In the black country in the 1950s, ex-boxer Norman Alonso is a determined and humble Jamaican who was moved to Britain with his wife to secure a brighter future for themselves and their children. Blighted with unexpected illness and racism, Norman and his family are resilient in the face of such hostilities, but are all too aware that they are in need of more than that and more than just hope to survive. At the turn of the millennium, Jesse seeks a fresh start in London, escaping from a broken immediate family, a repressive religious community, and the desolate disempowered black country, but finds himself at a loss for a new center of gravity and turns to sex work to create new notions of love, fatherhood, and spirituality. Rainbow Milk is a, Rainbow Milk is a bold exploration of race, class, sexuality, freedom, and religion across generations, time, and cultures. Paul Mendes is a fervent new writer with an original and urgent voice. It was also in the Observer 2020 Top 10 debut. This reminds me by Derek Awusu. 
This is a story of Kay. Kay is sent into care before a year marks his birth. He grows up in fields and woods and he is happy. So he thinks. When Kay is 11, the city reclaims him. He returns to an unknown mother and a part-time father, trading the fields for flats and community that is alien to him. Slowly he finds friends. Eventually he finds love. He learns how to navigate the city. But as he grows, he begins to realize that he needs more than the city that can provide. He is a man made of pieces, pieces that are slowly breaking apart. This reminds me is a story of one young man from birth to adulthood turned um, told in fragments of memory. He explores questions of identity, belonging, addiction, sexuality, violence, family, and religion. It is a deeply moving and completely original work of literature from one of the Britain's brightest young writers of today. He was also the winner of the Desmond Elliott Prize 2020, which is considered the UK's most prestigious award for first time novelists. And I think everyone's heard enough of me talking. So welcome guys, really, really appreciate you joining me here today. I'm really excited. So just to kick things off, how are you both doing today? How's your weekend been? Over to you, Derek. Oh, well, <laughs> my, my weekend, um, it's been okay. Um, I haven't done much, to be honest with you. I actually had the day off on Friday as well. Um, what work has done is if we have a bank holiday on Monday during COVID, they give us the Friday off as well. So we have like a four four day weekend, which is which is great. But if I'm being completely honest, all I've done is play Pokemon <laughs> for the whole time, to be honest. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. What about you, Paul? Have you had a chill that weekend? Um, no. <laughs> um... <laughs> I work from home and have been for about the last year and a half or something. So um, I've been busier than ever. Um, uh, assignments, writing assignments, reading. Um, I'm going on holiday next week. So I'm nice. trying to get everything done first. Before. Hopefully you won't have to quarantine for too long. And well, uh, <laughs> quarantine when coming back from Devon, that would be hilarious. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess you never know to be honest. <laughs> Brilliant, guys. So the first question I've got for yourselves is, despite the current state of the country and the world, for that matter, with social, racial and economic injustices just in the <coughs> and I know that Brexit is something that takes place in your novel, Paul, and mental health plays a theme in your book, Derek. Empathy is a word that really kind of came to me in, in mind when I was reading your books. What does each of your books say and teach the readers about empathy? Over to you, um, Paul. Um... Well, I think in this world, um, we use the word sympathy a lot and not the word empathy. Um, sympathy always um, sounds as if you're in a particular place to be able to condescend to someone and, um, you know, understand what they're going through or whatever. Um, but empathy requires um, equality. Uh, and that's something that we are not really seeing um, a lot. Um, but just the fact that Kay and Jesse in our books um, have survived to tell their stories, that's a good start because it then shows what the world is really like, especially, you know, considering we, you know, use literature, which is, um, you know, it's considered to be, you know, the preserve of quite sort of privileged people. But here we are coming from working class uh, backgrounds, people of colour and using language. Uh, the English language, the imperial language, um, in order to show Britain um, and the wider Western world, if you like, um, you know, 
what it is. Um, especially when you've got, you know, the governments on both sides of the Atlantic, um, keep they keep sort of trying to do things um, that, you know, they've historically gotten away with. Um, but, you know, that it just feels like that's coming to an end now with, you know, African-Americans leading the rest of the world in resistance against racism and racist thinking. You know, we've seen students here um, rising up and forcing the government to change its ways where it had allowed a classist algorithm to control their futures. Um, you know, we're still, we're living in um, in a time and in a place where, you know, it's almost like a new sort of age of resistance. Um, and I kind of feel like, you know, you mentioned Brexit and um, the aspects of Brexit in, in Rainbow Milk. Um, I really wanted to to add that um, that final section of the book um, because it seemed immediately as soon as the Brexit result, that the result of the vote was published, um, people in certain parts of the country started to think it was okay to be passively racist again. You know, empowered to um, to shout racist epithets to people of colour on public transport. Uh, for example, um, and in 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 the case of uh, Jesse's situation in Rainbow Milk, sort of walking through an English village and being confronted with gollywogs and African slave ornaments that people have taken out of storage or whatever um, and put back on display because actually it's you know they think it's okay now. And you know one of the things that I was really worried about was um, a return to the black and white minstrel show and all of that kind of thing. Um, because certain people feel like they're empowered um, to to be racist, almost as if the Brexit vote um, closed the borders and deported everyone all in one go. Um, and it's up to us, I think, as writers who've you know been born and raised here, or just anyone who has uh, you know an experience of you know being British and living here. Um, it's up to us to call that out. What about you, Derek? Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that Paul said. I think that literature is the ultimate empathy device. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> when I was writing, that reminds me, one of the things that I wanted people to do is somehow get into the skin of Cade, my main character, so that I guess all of the things that were happening to him and the things that he was doing to himself, I wanted people to experience them as viscerally as, as possible. So I tried to write it like that, so that after they come away from the book, they can perhaps look at their friends, families, or you know even strangers who they suspect maybe have a mental health, maybe having a mental health crisis, and not as Paul said, condescend like, oh, sympathy, we, we need empathy. There is too much of an element of condescension when it comes to sympathy. I don't particularly like that word, if I'm being perfectly honest. Um, and I think, yeah, that's that's exactly what it's about. And I think it's interesting that both Paul and I, you know, in writing our books, we start with before our main characters. You know, I start with before K. Paul starts before Jesse. Um, and that's because we understand that in order to understand our protagonist story, we have to understand what's come before. So we have to try and build the empathy, the understanding before that happens. You know, we don't, we never outright dismiss characters in our book who may have done, you know, horrible, sometimes horrible things to 
you know, our, our protagonist, there's always an element of empathy taking place. There's always that kind of caring. There's always, you know, there's love that flows out of both of these books, regardless of the situations that the protagonists um, find themselves in. So I do, I do feel like, you know, Paul and I were thinking in the same way when we were, we were writing these books that, okay, these things are happening, but at the end of the day, these are all human beings. And even when someone is doing something sometimes wicked to you, you, you still sometimes don't want to see something bad happen to them, especially when it comes to family or somebody that you're close to has wronged you in a particular kind of way. And I feel like that kind of whole idea 100% engenders empathy in, in the reader as well towards those characters who are dislikable. Do you know what I mean? Mm, no, definitely. And I guess being a um, young, talented, first-time novelist, myself and many other people would be quite intrigued and kind of knowing, like, what are some of the books and writers that have influenced you the most? And over to you, Paul. Um, very obviously, um, James Baldwin. I say that only because, like, <laughs> Derek's laughing. Because <laughs> every time I, I'm asked this question, I say the same thing. Um, but I really... Um, I, I reread um, one of his sort of lesser known novels, Tell Me How Long the Train's Been Gone, recently, and was just completely, so I, I read it for the first time um, age 20, um, so 18 years ago. And, you know, reading it now, I, I realised just how deeply that book seeped into me and sort of directed my path thereafter. Um, you know, it was the first time I'd, probably the first book I'd ever read by a black queer man um, and first time I'd ever read a black queer protagonist as well so um, I don't think it's any coincidence that a year after reading that um, I came out um, the summer I read that I started writing um, and very much like um, Baldwin's protagonist Leo, Pre uh, Leo Proudhammer I, I became an actor, I, you know, waited tables as a means of um, paying my way while reading. Um, and even, you know, reading Rainbow Milk back, um, realizing there's like a long restaurant scene <laughs> that's almost exactly the same as in Baldwin's novel. And I'm like, no, I thought that was original, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, Beyond that novel as well, um, his nonfiction in particular, um, Notes of a Native Son and The Fire Next Time, just really, um, just, I suppose I could say that Baldwin is a father figure to me, you know, just telling me what, what, what the world is like um, from a black male perspective. And not even necessarily from a queer perspective, but just, you know, you are a black man, you were born into, um, you know, a majority white world that is going to see you as being something that it has invented and it's nothing to do with you. Unfortunately, I was already in my thir early 30s when I read all of that. Um, but, you know, it's never too late to learn those lessons uh, and I'll always be extremely grateful to have him on my shelves. Yeah. So I think everyone could do we reading a bit of uh, James Baldwin um, books for sure. What about you, Derek? Who have been some of your inspirations? It's you know for me it's hard to tell. This it's been such a such a long line of um, it's like I'll read a 
a great book and it will definitely it will have an impact on me that maybe I can't pinpoint at the time, but later on I can. But to name a few, I would just say probably, of course, D.H. Lawrence, as you mentioned, was the first writer I read that just blew me away and made me realize there's so much in, in literature. Um, I don't read much of him now, but... It's gone on mute for a second. <laughs> um, no worries, are you with us, Derek? It's okay, we'll move on to the uh, next question as well. And uh, that, Derek's back. Oh, that, so, oh, sorry about that, sorry. <laughs> really sorry about that. Um, that's okay. You want me to answer the question? Yeah, you basically just touched up on that. You don't read and you don't read much of him anymore, basically. Yeah, so I don't read much of D.H. Lawrence anymore, but I have the influences are basically Ralph Ellison, Invisible Man. When I first read that as well, it just blew me away. Um, but the writers that really gave me the confidence to write my own novel are Jennifer Clement. I read an incredible book by her called Widow Basquiat and the structure and the way it was formatted made me realize that, okay, maybe my writing style does have a place mm -hmm. in literature. And then I know Claudia Rankin is obviously known mostly for Citizen, but when I read Don't Let Me Be Lonely, that's when I thought to myself, okay, I can write about mental health as well then. Um, so yeah, writers like that really, really influenced me, uh, really uh, blown me away. Um, and also a writer called Robin Travis as well. He wrote, um, incredible novel called Mama Can't Raise No Man. And that was the first time I actually saw people that I know or people like me reflected in literature, you know, just regular guys from, from Tottenham, you know, from Edmonton, things like that, just, just doing what they do. I read that and I thought, okay, I can't believe I've been reading for how many years and this is the first book I've come across where the author is speaking with, uh, I guess, vernacular, who's speaking about things that go on in Tottenham that are not even that interesting, but they're just very relatable. Mm. Um, so he, he definitely had an impact on why I wanted to write the books that I was, I was planning to write. In terms of my writing style, I think the author just had the biggest impact on my writing style. Two writers, it's F. Scott Fitzgerald, The Great Gatsby is my favorite book. Um, and uh, a Portuguese writer called Jose Saramago. I don't think I've ever read a writer who can play with sentence structure and, and things like that, grammar, as well as uh, Saramago. And he just doesn't, he just doesn't care. I mean, he doesn't use speech marks ever. He doesn't use paragraphs. He just writes in one long clunk. And I, I just think it's amazing. It's frustrating as a reader. Definitely frustrated as a reader, <laughs> but I just think he's incredible at what he does. It's, it's amazing. I uh, know. Brilliant. So religion is a big part of many people's lives, including that of the both main characters. Jesse grows up in a Jehovah's Witness community and Kay, who struggles to find consolidation in the church, whereas his mother does. Is it easy to kind of write about religion? How much does it impact both characters in your novels? I'll go to you, Derek. Yeah, uh, uh, hugely. Um, so, for example, my protagonist, Kay, well, in the, in the book, in the book that reminds me, there's sections where Kay is speaking to, abstractly speaking to Anansi, the spider of Akan's um, folklore. Um, and he's basically sending up a prayer. And this is his way to try and connect with Ghanaian culture 
through Anansi. In the same way where that people say in order to connect through Christianity, you know, need to go through Christ. Um, and of course, Kay dismisses Christianity um, early on in the book, mainly because his mum is such a fervent Christian. Um, and there's things that he wants to do. There's things that people want to do. Kids, young people want to do that they feel they can't because of how religious their parents are. They may not, they're usually not as religious as, as their parents, but it's almost like you have, you know, you, you've got three elders, you know, you've got your mom, your dad, and then you have God there. Do you know what I mean? Watching mm. you, you know, scrutinizing everything that you do. You know, you do something, you feel like it's a sin. During the day, you're fine. When it's nighttime, you're praying to God and saying, listen, I'm sorry I did that thing during the day. I, I really am a Christian. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And I find that that's something that happens to a lot of young people, that they're forced to believe something that they don't necessarily believe themselves. We never, we never unpack our beliefs. We grow into adulthood and just assume we believe them because we believe them. You know, I don't want to call it indoctrination because that, that sounds like a sinister thing. Um, but there is definitely an, an, an element of that. Um, so yeah, absolutely. You know, grappling with religion is is life, and I definitely agree with uh, the author Yan Marteau, where he says that you know, a book devoid of religion often is not really a very interesting book because religion is a part of almost all of our lives, whether we're whether we're repudiating it or we're accepting it or we're struggling with it in whatever way. You know, some of the greatest books in in literature have the main themes are you know, religion, you know, to go back to Paul's absolute devotion to James Baldwin, Go Tell It on the Mountain is an incredible book because of the way he's written about um, about religion. Do you know what I mean? The same uh, Song of Solomon as well by Tony Morrison. These books are very heavily involved with what all of us as people are heavily involved with. What about you, Paul? <clears throat> well, I, I absolutely agree with everything that Derek says, although in my case, um, growing up as a Jehovah's Witness, um, I would say it was in quite indoctrinating. Um, but I think it's quite difficult to write about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses because, you know, as far as I'm aware, there's no primer, there's no sort of like one-stop um, book about them that everyone's read. Um, you know, people don't really know who Jehovah's Witnesses are. They know that they sort of knock on their doors and they preach about, you know, they preach with the Watchtower and Away magazine and maybe they know that they don't celebrate birthdays or Christmas and that's about it. Or maybe they know about the blood issue um, and that's about it. But in terms of the day-to-day -day life of being a Jehovah's Witness, Jehovah's Witness most people don't know what that's like. Um, and I didn't want to take responsibility um, with my novel um to to tell people the facts of you know I mean, it's entirely up to them to to look themselves and find out i mean what if you know you can sort of compare this to what you've done in in that reminds me Derek. you've got a lot of um nation language in your book that you don't translate and that's fine like i've been told that you know there have been instances where um you know i've included some jamaican creole in in my book 
And like, you know, I've read reader reviews, which I shouldn't do, but like I've read reader reviews where they've said, oh, you need to have some like footnotes or translations or something so that we know what you're talking about. I'm like, dude, no, you need to like use your phone and Google it. (laughs) You know, I'm reading books all the time that expand my idea of language and, you know, expand my vocabulary. Like, you know, even before we get to the nation language, and that reminds me, um, and I only say that because um, I know there's like 80 languages in Ghana, and I'm not going to say it's three <laughs> um, because I don't know for sure. Um, but you know, even, you know, almost every page of that reminds me, I was like going for my dictionary and uh, to, to find out what words mean because, you know, we're having our um, ideas expanded all the time. So, you know, my point is, you know, I don't have to write... Um, everything about Jehovah's Witnesses in this book. Um, so that was like quite a, um, a big sort of conflict for me. But in, in the end, you know, the shape of my narrative dictated that I was only going to write a, a little sort of minimal thing. Because basically my, my book is about the transition uh, from being someone who, um, you know, has this sort of closed fundamentalist mentality uh, to become to becoming someone who's accepting and open-minded and creative and you know um, wants to understand the world um, on their own terms you know based on based on what makes sense to them and what um, is um, commensurate with the, you know the life that they live and the way that they're treated by other people for example um, you know Jesse's future is dictated by um, by the strength of his previous beliefs and his um, his need to kick back against them as hard as he possibly can um, to to, um, to to create a future for himself and to preserve his mental health. You know, he becomes a sex worker as a means of dismantling this doctrine, this indoctrination uh, that he's been subjected to from childhood. And, you know, Derek, I absolutely agree with you in terms of, um, you know, sometimes the word belief is kind of um, misleading because, you know, when you're taken to, like in my case, the Kingdom Hall from, you know, the age of two and you're given like this colourful brochure which says, you know, the world's going to look like this one day if you're well, if you're well behaved. Um, you know, we're all going to inherit this paradise if you keep sort of being faithful to God. Um, how do you go about sort of dismantling that as an adult when you realise actually you believe in evolution and not creation, for example? Um, so, again, Derek's right. Like, you know, religion is sort of everything, really. Um, it gives gives you the reason to, um, you know, my reading, my reading and my writing have always been... Um, uh, as a means of looking back against mm. the indoctrination and things that I've I've been taught are are true, um, but which you know I don't actually think are as an adult. Yeah. No, totally, I understand. I guess in a country where migrants are constantly vilified and dehumanized by the media, politicians, and others, how do you both explore the theme of? the immigrant experience and internal migration in both of your novels. I'll go over to you and Derek. The, the way that I tried to explore it was that I tried to think about my my mothers and my aunties. Um, 
I tried to remember the conversations that they had um, in Tree. And, and Paul, you're right, it is Tree. That is the language. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I tried to remember those conversations, uh, the brief comments that my mum had made, you know, because, you know, being West African a lot of the time, your parents don't want to speak about the immigrant experience. They don't want to talk about how hard it was when they came over. They just want you to have a good life. They don't want you to worry about them. Um, so in that sense, it is sometimes quite difficult to write about it because you don't have enough information. Um, but I really wanted to highlight, in order to get to the Im immigrant experience, the class issue that was, you know, that was still going on, of course, but what I remembered from, from childhood and then try to <clears throat> fictionalize that in a way where it was believable. Because I, I do find that a lot of the time when you write something that actually does ha did happen, it's just not very believable. So you have to fictionalize it anyway, um, you know. So I guess kind of speaking about the fact that um, Kay would eat, he would eat with his hands, for example. Not saying that's a that's a working class thing, but you know, eating with the hands all the time, and then maybe um, still smelling like that in the in in the morning, or the fact that um, Kay's house wasn't done up compared to his his white working class friends. Um, I found that a lot of the time, a lot of West African families had houses in Ghana or in Nigeria or, or wherever. And therefore, didn't take care of their houses in the UK the same way they would over there. They'll just any money they get, they send it back home. Sending all the money back home to take care of that house, build a house, develop that house. So they neglect the house that they here and that they have here. And they don't really care too much. But then, as a as a child, you're embarrassed by that. You don't want people to come into your house unless their house looks the same as yours. You know, mm. when I was younger, I wouldn't let anybody go to my house until I've been to their house first. If I go to their house. And then I see certain things that resemble my house, you know, one, two suitcases in the living room that's going to be sent to Ghana or, or whatever, something like that, you know, yeah. um, the, the kind of the kind of hoarding nature that comes with a lot of working class uh, West African families, then I'll be comfortable. And that's why I try to to capture, you know, and again, the you know, Kay's mom is a cleaner, you know, she's struggling, but at the same time, going back to the religious aspect she has God, so it, this doesn't even matter because this world doesn't matter. This world is is temporary. What really matters, as Paul said, is paradise, you know. And I think that even going back to, in a very simplistic way, going back to times of in, uh, enslaved people, religion was used to make promises of better times ahead. You know, you think to yourself, this isn't all there is. It's going to be okay. I just have to suffer through this and then, and then get there. Um, and that's why, you know, one prominent aspect of Kay's mother's life is that when things are not going very well, you can see that she clearly just turns to religion and thinks it's going to be all right because I have my God there. Do you know what I mean? Mm, no, no, no. There's a lot of things I can relate to as well and what you touched upon as well growing up. What about you, Paul? Do you find some certain similarities? Absolutely. Um, everything that Derek said. I mean, um, my I come from um, a Jamaican background, so I'm third generation 
Jamaican British. Um, my grandparents came over here in the 1950s, um, very much like Norman. And, you know, Norman's, um, so Norman opens the book for sort of the first 50 pages, telling us about his journey from the UK, uh, from Jamaica to the UK. Um, and like other Jamaicans and people from, um, from the Caribbean, their education is an English education. So they're you know, studying Victorian literature and um, you know, their idea of what written is going to be um, is dictated by that. And nobody's put that better than Andrea Levy in Small Island, um, where you know, Hortense, you know, she spent so long reading you know, Jane Austen and, and whatever, but you know, she thinks that everyone here is going to be Mr. Darcy and you know Elizabeth Bennet, and you know, <laughs> looking forward to um, sitting on her veranda with her white gloves on, you know, looking at her white picket fence and her daffodils growing in all the colours of the rainbow, which just goes to show just like how <laughs> sort of ignorant she was, really. Um, and you know, drinking tea and you know, waving to her neighbour and her English woman neighbour waving back, and you know, that's the Britain that she, um, uh, you know, thought uh, she was going to be moving to, uh, that she, you know, that she invested all of her hopes in in living in one day and sort of, you know, starting this new life and you know having children and you know those children having a better life and having better opportunities. Um, and my grandparents are exactly the same. So very much like Derek, um, they said nothing. I, they, you know, you'd ask them questions about their past. And they just wouldn't answer, or they'd, mm. or they'd say, I, I don't remember. Um, you know, as far as they were concerned, I'm English. And that's a great achievement for them. In their mind, that is a great achievement for them. But, like, I speak English, you know, sort of in an English accent, and I go to an English school, and I study English books and do maths and everything. That's, like, for them, that's uh, success. Um, but you know, we miss, we're skipping out a generation there. So my parents, um, neither of my parents have been to Jamaica. Um, and I guess, you know, the second generation, if you like, you know, that was sort of, um, people were sort of responding to things in different ways. So either they clung to their heritage um, and tried to find a way of living as British people, but retaining their Caribbean heritage. Or like my parents, they sort of turned their back on it all together and sort of became de facto white people. Um, and I think my generation um, of the family are starting to realize, well, actually we are Jamaican. And, you know, and I think the Windrush scandal really sort of um, uh, turbocharged that sort of um, mm. sense of, wanting to, to, to read back into our history. And I mentioned Small Island because, um, you know, I read that in my early 30s, and that was the first time I really found out what Jamaican people's lives were like before they came to the UK. You know, I, I found out through that book what, um, what my grandparents wouldn't tell me. Um, and so Norman's story is sort of, like I said, the classic sort of Windrush story um, and I only had, like, Norman is sort of, I suppose, based on my paternal grandfather who died when my dad was two years old. So I've never, I don't know anything about him. My dad doesn't know anything about him. But because uh, when I, I, I knew sort of one or two uh, facts about his life, 
I can then sort of use fiction, do the research, and sort of create this world around them to to show um, to show the migration story um, to the West Midlands, um, where the baton then gets passed on to Jesse, who then sort of migrates internally to the metropolis, which is a whole different world again. Um, you know this. And it, that's again, I suppose, quite a classic sort of run away from the provinces to the capital kind of story. Um, but yeah, um, I guess I guess the story is always developing and always always changing. Oh, for sure. Thank you very much for sharing that. And how much has how much has music played in your own personal lives as well as the lives of uh, in, in your novels? Uh, I know there's some music references in both your books, uh, such as Daniel O'Donnell's give a little uh, love in your book, uh, Derek. So I'll go to you first. Um, yeah, music, music plays a big part. I mean, when I was, when I was writing it, I was thinking about uh, music. And it's funny you mentioned the Daniel O'Donnell <laughs> reference because one thing that I've always found fascinating, and, and Paul, you might be able to comment on this as well, is that West Africans and a lot of Jamaicans I know have this weird obsession with country music. I've never quite understood it. <laughs> I've never understood it, but it's, it's absolutely there. My mum was obsessed with Daniel O'Donnell, so I thought there's no way I could not put him in this book. Um, and it may seem random, but I'm sure some people read it and thought, yeah, yeah, my parents too. Um, so that was there. And then, of course, there was grime in there as well. You know, I, I grew up when Grime was really coming into its own. I was really influenced by, you know, rappers as well, like Nas. They were really important in my life in terms of um, narrative and, and, and wordplay and how you can just bend the rules or grammar and things like that. That really interested me. It was really nice to listen to. I don't think I've ever listened to a rapper with a flow like Nas before. Um so that 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 was um that was very very um important to me, and a lot of the verses that I wrote in in that reminds me a lot of the memories I had particular songs in my mind when I was writing them, you know, in a very 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 rough draft of the book, some of the verses were titled after songs, you know, um, and obviously once I was turning it into a novel, that obviously couldn't remain anymore. So we had to to get to get rid of that, but I don't know if anybody's picked up. But there's there's a lot of verses that you can. Obviously, I wrote it, so it's in my head. But um, um, maybe you could tell that there is, a song has some sort of influence on this this memory that Kay is um, recalling. Because one thing that was very important to me, because I'm writing in fragments of memory, certain things trigger memories. Shows trigger memories. Films trigger memories. Smells music all of these kind of things. So I wanted to make sure that there was an element of that in the memories that maybe somebody could pick up on. Mm. No, and I can definitely relate to Naz also had a massive impact to me when I was uh, growing up. And what about you, Paul? Um, yeah, so Derek, like I totally get it with line dancing and country music. Like, I don't know what it is, but like my parents as well, they were down with like, what was that tune? Don't tell my heart, my achy breaky heart. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
all the all the, all the folk songs, all them kind of songs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my god! Like they were so down for that. Um, I don't know why. I'm not even going to try and unpack that at all. I'm just not doing it. Um, but I tell you what, your your book, and I was thinking about this today, um, Derek. Uh, that reminds me. It reminds me of um, Lemonade. But the film version oh, okay. where she's using um, Wasan Shire's poetry. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of set up in, in um, so you've got these uh, uh, headings like um, construction and mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember off the top of my head what the other headings are. Um, but it just reminded me of these sort of like, you know, the stages of grief that, um, that Beyonce appropriated for the structure mm. of the film. Um, and also the the Anansi, um, um, the Anansi sort of stories at, at the beginnings of each section um, sort of really reminded me of Wasan Shiri's poetry. Um, and I mean, there's just, you know what, I think music is just so important to us as Black people generally. Um, you know, it's one of the only things we've had really that we can be consistently proud of our achievements in. You know, we're on top of the pops, the chart show, we're all over the radio, you know, we're, we're top of the charts all the time. You know, that you, you can't really say that there are many aspects of life where black people are as kind of um, influential as in music. So music has just always been there. It's always been our thing. Um, and so like Derek said, um, you know, music has become for me um, my main access to memory and to, um, you know, so much of my memories are anchored in music. Um, and so I used that to my advantage, both in terms of uh, generating material, but also because I've just got music in my head all the time. You know, I, I often have to fight against it while I'm reading and writing. Um, but, you know, sometimes mm. I think I take over and mm. um, I put it in the room. Like I use it to sort of break down barriers between people in the room who don't necessarily have anything in common. Um, you know, the unknown pleasures scene, for example, um, in the middle of the book on Christmas Day in 2002, where Jesse is with his housemate um, and they're both sort of estranged from their families and so they spend Christmas together um, and they listen to, um, to Joy Division's Unknown Pleasures and they both have like a very, very, very different um, set of, um, uh, it, it, well, it just basically triggers different things in both of them, um, but they can sort of, that, that breaks the ice for them in terms of establishing their relationship. Um, so um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always been incredibly important to me and now I suppose the challenge for me as a writer is to how to write a novel without <laughs> a constant playlist going on. Can I can I can I quickly just ask Paul one yeah, question? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Paul, how do you how did you choose which songs to deconstruct in a novel? Gonna repeat that again, Derek. Sorry. Derek? Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, repeat you... that again. We lost you for a second. Oh question. sorry, I said I said Paul, how did you choose which songs to deconstruct in your novel? Um, when you say deconstruct, what like in terms of writing about the songs or which yeah, songs in, in the in, in the in the detail that you did? So, for example, I mean, I know you love Beyonce and Solange, um, so that probably wasn't a hard choice for you. <laughs> but, 
<laughs> but then, yeah, I mean, even those actually, how did you decide which songs you're going to write about? Um, well, okay, what, one really good example of this. Well, you know, coming back to Unknown Pleasures, first of all, mm-hmm. um, that for me personally was the first time I'd heard in music. I, the first time I'd heard music that sounded like um, <laughs> the area that I grew up in. So the empty factories, the empty foundries, like the, the ironworks, um, the steel making factories, you know, the um, scaffolding poles on the back of trucks, etc. That was the sound of my childhood. And it was the first time I'd heard an album that sounded like that. So for me, I used that as a means of exploring um, an early sense of nostalgia for Jesse and an early sort of sense that actually he is really missing aspects of, of, of home. Mm. now that he's living in London. Um, another example is um, Free Like Me by the Sugar Babes. Um, mm-hmm. Sugar Babes, no article. I was going to ask you about um, this as well. <laughs> <laughs> so we, can, we don't give a damn mix as well, not the radio edit. Um, <laughs> that's because well, I was living in Kent at, at the time that that song was number one. And, you know, it's my first time living away from home. I was living with um, a group of photography students. Um, And, you know, it was spring and I was having a really good time. And um, this song was number one and it just sounded different from everything else. And it was like a real sort of earworm. Um, I love the fact that it was a mashup between two other songs that I really loved as well. Um, and it just seemed so new and, it, you know, the, the world just seemed so full of possibilities for me at that time that I sort of really attached that song to that sort of sense of positivity and like, you know, the sense of the future happening. Um, and I wanted Jesse to, to have that. And I wanted Jesse to have that as, a, as almost, um, his ignition that sends him to London, you know, this, this, you know, this moment of um, pop perfection makes it possible for him to, um, to run away from home and to leave everything behind that he's ever known, to leave his Bible on his pillow, to leave his keys mm. on his pillow and to with 300 quid in his account move to London. You know, that's not something that can be done easily by anyone, never mm. mind a sheltered 19 year old Jehovah's Witness. So, and like we've both said, like music sometimes just is that trigger. Um, and so, um, I mean, all of the song, or well, most of the songs are songs from my own personal kind of list of like fame mm. um, and most influential tracks. Okay. All right, we've just got over 10 minutes. We want to get into these um, questions from the audience. I want to ask you guys to answer as um, shortly as possible, just to kind of through as much of these great questions as possible. First question is from Ken. And Ken asks, the tropes we all associate with coming of age novels have emerged from a long line of stories from people of similar racial and class backgrounds. Did you write with these tropes in mind at all? And do you feel like your books subvert them? Over to you, Derek, first. Uh, No, I didn't write with the, the tropes in mind. I wasn't trying to subvert them. If if they do, then 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 great. Um, I mean, there's a lot of coming of age novels that I really really love. You know, I know a lot of people hate it, but I love The Catcher in the Rye. Um, I think that's probably the coming of age novel that most people think of. 
Um, but no, I was I wasn't trying to suffer anything. I wasn't trying to work with anything. I was just trying to tell the story in the way that I knew how, and that was in fragments of memory, getting to know somebody through memory. As when you know you talk to someone, you're getting to know them. What you do, you have to recall things from your past in order to build a picture of yourself. And it just made a lot of sense to do that in the form of a novel. What about you, Paul? I just don't think there are that many scripts in, in, in um, you know, there aren't many novels written by queer black writers from the Midlands who have grown up as Jehovah's Witnesses and became sex workers. That's just not you know, something that you see. So I wasn't really aware of tropes existing in that arena. Um, and, you know, at the same time, you know, I had to read books like um, Go Tell It on the Mountain, as you mentioned earlier, Derek, and um, Oranges and Not the Only Fruit by Jeanette Winterson, uh, both of which are coming-of-age novels um, uh, by queer authors um, about queer protagonists. Um, so you need to have, you know, your, um, your predecessors, but... Um, I think, you know, the beauty of being in our situation is we just don't, we have to invent everything. Mm. And you, you know, we can't just sort of um, be relaxed in, um, in, uh, in tropes. We've got a question um, specifically to Paul, but I'm sure Derek can also answer, is um, art is embedded in your novel. Can you talk a bit more about your reference to black British art in your novel? Did you intend for it to be on the same pain as music in your novel, or is it secondary to music? Um, art and music are not sort of um, secondary to one another at all. Um, you know, I think one of the things that I've um, learned as I've got older, um, so that sounds really portentous, um, but I've just discovered and done a lot of research recently into, um, you know, the Black Art Group and the Black Audio Film Collective and, you know, a group of Black artists who were living and working in Wolverhampton in the late 1970s, so just down the road from where I grew up, um, who just had a huge impact on, on what's happened in the Black art world since. And uh, again, you know, it's it's getting older and sort of taking it upon yourself to to research things um, where, you know, you're not being taught these things at school, that like no one's sort of like falling over themselves to teach you about, you know, that sort of side of culture. So um, for me, um, and because I've just always um, been interested in art, it was always going to be part of my book and a means of um, exploring the previous generation and their impact. Yeah. Uh, next question is, there's been a lot of uh, discussion recently about how the publishing industry has let down black writers. Do you think things will improve because of this? And what were your experiences in the publishing industry like? We'll go to you, Derek. Um, I think as a whole, the 100% uh, of the publishing industry is, is, is filled with black writers, diverse uh, uh, writers, people from, you know, all the underrepresented backgrounds definitely failed us. Um, I think my experience, I got, I got very lucky because, you know, I'm published by Murky Books and they were obviously very aware of how the publishing industry has failed us. So they were, tr you know, trying their best not to reproduce that kind of experience for me. So, you know, I never had, I got lucky. My editor was great. The marketing and publishing um, 
teams, they were they were great as well. But that obviously didn't blind me and make me think, well, I had a good, it can't be bad for other people. I know how bad it is for other people. I know how, how difficult it can be to get published, to get an agent, you know, to get publishers to believe in your book, you know, and so that you're not just a tick box, you know, okay, well, we've published this person, we can now put him in on the sheets when it comes to the boss saying, well, how many rise of color or black rise have you published? You can say this many, but you know, how much marketing and publicity spend did you put behind them? How much work did you put into editing it? You know, those are questions that I never asked in those big meetings. Um, and these are the things that we need to overcome. And this is one of the reasons why something like the Black Writers Guild is so important, why it's come about is in order to tackle these issues that we, we have in the publishing industry. Would you like to comment, Paul? Um, everything Derek says. Um, and I'd, I'd also add that it starts with education. Um, so being at secondary school, all of my reading, all of my GCSE syllabus uh, were white authors, white poets, you know, dead white people who, you know, it's great to learn them and it's, you know, it should be part of everyone's education. Um, but it didn't give me a sense that I could ever become a writer because I don't look like any of the people who I'm studying. Um, so hopefully that will change in the future. And I think that's part of the remit of the Black Writers Guild as well to sort of challenge um, the education system. Brilliant. Forgot to mention that was a question from Amelia M. So thanks for asking that question. And next question is from Nicole O. Why did you decide to write your books from a place of personal experience? Have you suffered criticism from anyone in your past for doing this? And we'll go to you first. Um, um, I couldn't start with anything else. This is just my first novel. You know, I mean, it's great that I'm here at the Edinburgh Festival talking about it like I'm an expert or something, but I've only written one book and I could only start with my own experiences. That's, you know, that was the reason why I wrote for you know, 20 years, you know, cathartically and, you know, to explain um, how, you know, it's, you know, my life has been a transition from being, you know, a devout Jehovah's Witness uh, to being a sex worker within five years, like in my early 20s, do you know what I mean? You know, and I, I really had to, you know, writing for me, the reason to write was to unpack that and to, um, so that I could understand where I'd been, where I was going, and, you know, to create a future for myself. And, you know, I spent 20 years on that tip and I was very lucky to meet Charmaine Lovegrove, my publisher, who saw all this material and said, like, look, let's turn this into a novel. Uh, and that's now set me off on uh, hopefully like a career as a novelist, like who knows. Um, but it was just really important that I started with, um, with my own subjects. And like I said earlier, there just aren't that many um, stories from this kind of background. So it's, it's very, very important to me to testify yeah, I, I, yeah, I absolutely agree with um, everything Paul said. You know, and and a lot of most debut novels start off with personal um, experience. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I, I personally don't think you can write a novel without personal experience being involved in it anyway. Um, so you know, I just think that there's there's no way to get around that. I mean, it's going to get to a point where people will obviously stop asking the question. Um, but it doesn't mean that the facts will not remain that you've put something of your own life in this novel because it's just in, um, impossible. You know, I always when when people I always think of um, the picture of Dorian Gray, the the opening when he, you know, um, 
when Lord um, Henry's talking to, I can't remember his name, and he's kind of like, there's, there's too much of you in this picture. And it's kind of like, well, how, how do I even overcome that? How do I not do that? It's always going to, to be there. And I think that's the fact, a fact of literature as well. And it's gonna ask you very one last quick fire question. If you can literally keep it within like 10, 20 seconds, that'd be great. Why did you both choose to write this book and why now? Over to you, um, Paul, first. Um, well, like I said, it wasn't really um, up to me um, when it happened. It, it, it just had to happen. Mm. I had to write this book. I had to become a writer. There's, there's nothing else I can do. Um, so there you go. And a great writer for that as well. What about you, Eric? Uh, yeah, I was I was I was forced to write this book through circumstances. Um, so, and it was inevitable what I was going to write about. No matter, I think no matter when I wrote this book, this was always going to be the subject matter that I, that I chose to write about. Brilliant. And on that note, guys, I just want to say a massive, massive thank you to both you and Paul and Derek for and sharing your amazing book and joining us in conversation to the wonderful audience that joined us today. For anyone that's interested in picking up the books, you can get it from the Festival's Independent Bookshop, which is shop.edbookfest.co.uk, as well as lots of other titles. And this year's festival is completely free and it's been made possible by, by the generosity of so many others. So if you would like to also donate, you'd also be welcome to as well. And thank everyone and the tech team that put this together and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.